0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Recently, I was lucky enough to get to Athens, which has been a long-held ambition of mine, so you can probably imagine how exciting the prospect was for me. I've travelled quite a lot, but somehow I've never managed to get to the Greek capital before. My expectations were very high, and I'm pleased to say that the city didn't disappoint. I can't say too much about the modern city as my focus throughout the week-long stay was on the ancient heart of the city. But I can say that it certainly looks good when seen from a high vantage point. There is little high-rise construction thanks to the frequency of earthquakes in the region and the predominantly white painted buildings nestle into the plain and snake into the foothills of the nearby mountains. Under a clear blue sky and with the sea glistening in the sunshine in the distance, the city looked good in the mostly benign autumn weather. Up close, in the clog of the traffic in the narrow streets and the crush of the tourist horde, it's not quite so pleasing. But being very conscious that I was part of that tourist horde, I think we have to be forgiving. One thing I can say with some admiration is that the tourist areas at least are well kept and cleaned regularly, making it one of the best kept ancient cities that I've ever been to. I got the impression that the Athenians really care about their history, and not just because many of them make a living from it. It is more that they are very conscious of being Athenian, and the important place where that puts them in European history. Day by day, they wear their heritage proudly, but lightly. As far as the ancient heart of the city goes, it is centred, of course, on the Acropolis, the chunk of rock that sticks up from the city by 150 metres. That's nearly 500 feet in old money. And so it has been for millennia, literally. There is archaeological evidence of human activity on this rocky mound as far back as the 4th millennium BCE. But calling it a rocky mound gives you the wrong impression. At its full height, the rock is pretty flat, making it, from the earliest times, accessible with a little effort, and useful. There seems no doubt that from the very earliest times, this was a very special place. There's just over seven acres, that's three hectares, of usable space. Not usable for agriculture, of course, this is essentially bare rock that we're talking about. And I think it's safe to assume that any natural vegetation that was clinging to the rock in prehistory was soon beaten down and removed when man started to frequent the space. The earliest occupation was probably for reasons of safety. The surrounding view from the rock would give little opportunity for hiding from defenders, but developed into something more as the town grew. There is thought to have been a Mycenaean palace built on the site sometime before the 10th century BCE. Sandstone steps and a single limestone pillar from that period and the base of a slightly later massive retaining wall are the evidence for that assumption. Although there were other buildings constructed and demolished in the intervening period, it is in the 5th century BCE that, for us, things get really interesting. Pericles was the guiding force behind the most important buildings on the site that still survive today, the Parthenon and the Temple of Athena Nike, among others. One of the first things I saw in Athens as I left my hotel on the first morning in the city was a statue of Pericles. This is not the ancient original, but a statue that was unveiled in 1973. Carved out of Carrara marble by German artist Heinrich Foltemeier, it stands outside the town hall, so understandably references Pericles' abilities as a statesman rather than a war general. The pose represents him about to deliver his speech to the demos, that is known as the Funeral Oration to Democracy and Citizenship. The statue caused some controversy in 1973 when the choice of a non-Greek artist was questioned, and the cloak and helmet, some said, looked too Roman and inappropriate for the occasion. However, it's a striking statue and clearly modelled on some older images of that great leader. The credit for beginning the construction of a revitalised Acropolis doesn't go to Pericles, but to his predecessor, Thermostocles, who commissioned the new temple after the defeat of Xerxes at the Battle of Evrymedan in 469 or 466 BCE. The Acropolis formed part of the Athenian defensive ring, a series of walls, mounds and other earthworks and in the immediate aftermath of the Persian threat he quite understandably focused on the reconstruction of the walls to the south and north of the site which were an obvious weak spot. So it was left to Pericles in the period from 460 BCE to work on the temples. The entry gate on the west was reconstructed in 437 BCE, using marble quarried from Mount Pantalakos, about 20 kilometres northeast of the city. The small temple of Athena Nike was started about the same time, but wasn't completed until 409 BCE, thanks to interruptions caused by the Peloponnesian War. The larger temple, built to house the statue of Athena, was completed in the same period. Now known as the Erection, it is the second largest building on the site, next to the Parthenon itself, and is well known for the six statues that act as pillars in the porch of the maidens. These are the Caryatids, or architectural forms that serve as pillars, a term first introduced by none other than our old friend Vitruvius in his De Architura. The way the tourist route is organised, and deviation from its well-trodden path is frowned upon by the guardians of the site, who appear at frequent intervals, whistles at the ready to stop those who dare to deviate or touch some marble or limestone, leaves you in no doubt that the goal of your walk is to reach the Parthenon, but there are delights on the way. As you climb up the defined route, the first major site for you to take in is the Theatre of Dionysus. Your first view of the theatre comes as you climb up slowly, so the upper auditorium, a steep grassy bank with a few scattered marble seats, comes into view first. Then you see the lower auditorium with the rows of marble seating more or less in place. The amount of ancient marble in the theatre, on the site and in Athens as a whole, is one of the wonders of the city. A marble trader and transporter must have been a lucrative job in the ancient city. The lower auditorium is marred by two sections of scaffold that are, I assume, holding sections of the marble in place. The marble, despite its great age, still gleams in the morning sun. Some sections look newer than others, part of some very historic refurbishment that doesn't detract from the overall impression. The first row of seating includes several marble throne-like seats, but clearly not all of this VIP seating has survived. The low retaining wall that separates the auditorium from the orchestra is largely intact and the floor of the orchestra is a mixture of flagstones and cobbles with just a small section of decoration remaining. Arriving there was, of course, quite a moment. Here I was, at the very heart of theatrical history. But there was disappointment too. The orchestra and auditorium are very firmly roped off, so there was no chance to take up a position and recite some Aeschylus or to experience the view from the stone seats that are still in place. Of course, this is completely understandable. The tourist crowd on the site was large enough on the day I was there at the end of the summer season. In high summer, it is crowded to breaking point. Such a large number of people over a delicate ancient site would inevitably cause it damage, but still, it would have been nice to get closer. As I was standing against the ropes taking it all in, trying to imagine the original layout with the full seating and altar in place, I heard one of the guides, who see the individuals and small parties around the site, announce to her attentive charges that she was about to be controversial. My ears pricked up. She said that guides always told people that this was the first theatre, and all others were modelled on it, but she disagreed. Her point was that this theatre was close to perfection from a size and acoustics point of view, and it was very unlikely that this level of perfection could have been reached without the learning that the building of its forerunners would have provided. Everyone around her nodded wisely, appreciating her candour. In fact, it's easy to agree with her. The original theatre on the Acropolis was on the opposite side of the hill and was moved to its current position when more space for the demos of Athens was needed, so this is at least the second theatre. But also, it is fair to say that some form of earlier theatres or places of meeting in the natural bowl of hills where acoustics were good is entirely likely. However, that does, I think, rather miss the true importance of this particular site. It is from this spot that the history of theatre is traceable. There are mists lying behind it that we may never penetrate, but from here, from this place, we are in a clearer light. The evidence may be at times fragmentary, but the path is nevertheless unbroken. That is what really matters here. What struck me about the site first was that from where I entered, near the modern metro station, it was quite a steep climb, even to the theatre, which is on the lower slopes. But from the ancient Agora, where most ancient Athenians would have approached from, the climb is even longer and steeper. This takes an effort, but not so much of an effort as to put you off completely. Given the political and religious importance of this site, even before we consider it as a venue for entertainment, I think that the idea of the effort of getting there is important. The rights to democracy, peace and wealth were hard won by the Athenians and to be reminded of that even in a small way was important to the Athenian mind. Hubris, as many of the speakers in the theatre would no doubt have reminded the demos, was always lurking just around the corner, ready to strike and strip you of all that had been fought for. Here we are at the heart of the vaunted Athenian democracy. Take a breath, it's quite a thought. But then, it's time to move on, and we continue to wind our way up to the Parthenon. As we climb, the path goes back past the theatre, so we now look down on it more or less from a position where some of the higher seating would have been. From here, you get a real sense of how everything is focused on the central point of the orchestra, thanks to the steep incline of the auditorium and the natural curve of the hillside on either side. The climb continues a little further. We turn a corner and are presented with another theatrical gem, the Odeon of Herodes Atticus, also known as the Herodian. This is the remains of a Roman period theatre that was completed in 61 CE. The layout is typical of a Roman theatre, but on a grand scale. The Scania Frons, that permanent back wall of the stage, was built to three levels in stone. Two of these levels are largely intact. Originally the theatre was roofed with Lebanese cedar which is of course now long gone and had a capacity estimated at about 5,000. The theatre survived until 267 CE when it was destroyed by invading Germanic tribes. Some pictures I've seen from the 1880s show the auditorium being little more than piles of rubble and the shape of the orchestra just being in a grassy outline. It looks like it was pretty inaccessible and certainly would not be considered safe for tourists or performers by modern standards. Another historic photo from 1939 shows the orchestra of the Athens Conservatory performing at the theater, led by Herbert von Karajan. The Athens orchestra looks comfortable enough, but from what can be seen of the audience, they look well-dressed but precariously perched. The site was extensively renovated in the 1950s when the marble seating in the auditorium was renewed and the orchestra floor restored. The renovations are, I think, a mixed blessing. They mean that the theatre can still be used for productions, but as a historic site, it's now very clearly divided into two parts, with the stage and the Scania Fonds retaining an archaeological look, and the orchestra and auditorium feeling, well, modern. Since the 1950s, the theatre has been used for at the annual Athens Festival and concerts by many performers, from Maria Callas to the Foo Fighters and much in between. Today, access for the tourist is restricted, so you can only view the theatre from above the auditorium, which does give you a good sense of the audience view, but again, I longed to stand on the stage, or at least sit in the auditorium. The theatre was commissioned by Herodes Atticus who was Athenian by birth and from a good family who could trace their roots back to leaders who had fought at the Battle of Marathon. His full family name included the name Tiberius so it seems likely that an ancestor gained Roman citizenship into the Claudius clan and from there the family prospered as administrators in the empire following the route through the Roman administrative positions. By the time of his birth Herodes' father was a Roman senator and his mother a rich heiress. The young Herodes was educated in the Roman manner by some of the best minds available in Greece. When he was 24, Emperor Hadrian appointed him as prefect to the Roman cities in Asia. That is now much of southern and eastern Turkey and also included the smaller Aegean islands. When he was recalled, he served as chief magistrate of Athens before being summoned to Rome to tutor the sons of future Emperor Marcus Aurelius. He married into an aristocratic Roman family when he was forty. His bride was just fourteen. Now that makes us more than a little queasy now, but was not unusual at the time, and the couple produced a brood of children and prospered in Rome. On the surface, all seemed well. The family returned to Greece. In 160 CE, his wife was heavily pregnant when she was kicked and beaten by a freedman serving in his household. She went into premature labour and died in the process. Her brother, who was serving as consul that year, accused his brother-in-law of ordering her murder. The case went to the emperor, now Marcus Aurelius, who found no fault with his old tutor. Suspicion still hung over him, but it was in memory of his wife that he built the Odeon on the Acropolis hillside, so perhaps there was at least regret, if not a real sense of loss and grief. In fact, the Odeon is just one of the many buildings that he commissioned. A theatre in Corinth, baths in Thermopylae, a stadium in Delphi and many others all bear his mark, and in Athens itself he commissioned a rebuilding of the Panathletic Stadium his version being constructed in marble on the remains of an earlier incarnation. It is a site that can still be visited in a refurbished form today. The stadium was rebuilt again for the first modern Olympic Games, held in the summer of 1896. Although not fully completed for the Games themselves, the stadium now has marble seating for all the spectators and features a long, tight running track. At those first modern games, the organisers took inspiration from the legend of Philippides, who were said to have run from the Battle of Marathon to Athens to report the great Athenian victory there, and created the modern marathon race. The finish line was positioned in the Panathletic Stadium and was always planned to be the high point of the athletics competition. This was only superseded by the delight of the crowd when the race was won by a Greek athlete, Spyridon Louis. For the record, his time was 2 hours, 58 minutes and 50 seconds. His victory is something that is still a matter of national pride to this day. As I stood in the stadium, I couldn't help wondering how many of the 17 competitors back then knew that Philippides died once he'd completed his task. And so I should complete the climb to the top of the Acropolis and the Parthenon, but I'm not going to linger on it here. I'm sure you all know what it looks like and the crush of tourists through the entry gate and around the temple itself was not the best memory of my day on the Acropolis. But don't get me wrong, it is spectacular. It is worth seeing and experiencing. There is a perfection in its lines and proportions that even a novice in the world of architecture like me can appreciate. To be in something purpose-built by man in a place like this is something very special. Also, the view of Athens and the other sites on the top of the rock are great to see, so go there if you get the chance. Athens certainly has something very special about it, which include the major historical sites of course, but there are many other smaller surprises. The small archaeological museum at the Port of Piraeus, just a short bus ride from the city, has a fascinating collection of funerary monuments from antiquity and I would put that on the must-see list. There are a number of Byzantine period churches in the city centre, all well worth a look, and for the fit, there is the walk up Lycabettus Hill, which is a very steep path of steps until you get to the cable car that takes you to the very top, where there's a small church and a fantastic view of the city. It was from there, as I looked down at the city, that one theory I'd read about the emergence of democracy in Athens came to mind. The question is, why did democracy as a system of government develop in Athens, but not in the other great preceding civilizations? Those, the Egyptians, the Abyssinians, and others, were all authoritarian states ruled by a strong and single leader. The truth is that we can never be sure of the answer for this, but there is the idea that Greece, and particularly Athenian Attica, the Athenian hinterland, was not only a benign place where a civilization could flourish but one where the scale of the landscape does not provide big challenges for human comprehension. The Egyptians, to use them as an example, had to deal with monumental events, like the huge ebb and flow of the Nile every year, in order to survive. Their problems, and therefore their solutions, were writ large. They had to be to succeed, and their gods, their whole theocratic system, reflected this. Their monuments were built on a scale to test human comprehension. Their gods were not human, but a supernature based somewhere between animal and human, until they began to deify their past leaders, a status that usually only survived until the next leader, or the one after that that decided to scrub them from history. But the Athenians weren't like this. The land they lived in was benign, but also slightly austere. Around Athens, the most dramatic natural feature is the Acropolis, all 490 feet of it. Mount Olympus, which for the Greeks was seen as touching the sky and the highest thing they could imagine, is only 9,500 feet high. Their gods were larger than life but they were drenched in human characteristics and particularly in human failings. Athenians saw life playing out on a landscape largely writ on the human scale and so their gods reflected this their gods only controlled man's actions to a degree. And for day-to-day activities, man found the ability to make their own decisions collectively, because they could see how their decisions could be implemented in this land that supported them. It is a concept that I think is entirely plausible, and having spent a short time on that land, whatever the frustrations of being a tourist might be, I did feel affected by it, and left for home feeling refreshed and enlightened. (laughs) Mm-hmm.